We are, as I imagine, I, I guess you know, we are continuing in our study of Jonah this morning. If you have your Bible with you, uh, turn there, Jonah chapter 2. Uh, Jonah chapter 2. We, as we've been following this story, it has been moving at rather a breakneck pace. Maybe even more rapidly than Mark moves through his exposition of the gospel. Jonah seems to run through chapter 1 and the events there just immediately, one right after the other after the other, with no break, no slowing at all. One thing comes right after the other almost breathlessly as Jonah descends from his home in Israel to Joppa, from Joppa to the ship's hold, or to the ship, and then to the ship's hold, and then down into the sea itself. But now Jonah has arrived at the bottom, swallowed by the sea. We're going to find that the pace slows rather dramatically here. Before I read Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, let us go together to the Lord and ask that he would speak his truth to us today. Pray with me. Actually, if you're able, please stand while we pray and then remain standing as I read from Jonah chapter 2. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself in it and we pray, Lord Jesus, send us your spirit that you would give us clear eyes to see your truth, that you would soften our hearts that we might understand and believe what you tell us in your word. Because if you do not send your spirit, if you do not restrain our sin, we will certainly misapply. We will misunderstand. We will intentionally go astray if you don't restrain us. Send your spirit today that your name would be praised in the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray it all in that very name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm reading from Jonah. Obviously, I'm gonna, we're focusing on chapter 2, but I'm going to start reading at the end of chapter 1 just to give us the reminder of the context. So this is starting at, at 117. This is God's word. The Lord appointed, or had appointed, a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your breakers passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters had closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will, pray, will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade. 
The word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. So some of you may know, college for me did not begin smoothly. Uh, This is not an uncommon experience, but still, I was living in a new city. I was away from everyone that I knew, away from everyone who had been an encouragement to me in my Christian walk. I didn't have a car, and there wasn't really any good church within walking distance, despite the fact that there were probably 50 churches within walking distance. None of them were living churches. That's another story. Uh, I caught rides to solid churches when I could, when I could be bothered to do so. Uh, And, predictably, my walk with God grew colder, grew more distant. I didn't reject him. I just sort of drifted away. I was kind of half-heartedly connected to a student Bible study on campus that first semester, uh, but never really engaged with it, never really got close, only attended sporadically. And then in the spring of my first year, my second semester, I got a part, a role in a production of Shakespeare's Richard III. I had been involved in theater in high school, enjoyed the the rush and the adrenaline of of getting the production ready and then being on stage, and so I was excited uh, to be a part of that. I loved the camaraderie. But there's only so much time in any given day. My already slight friendships with the people in the Bible study pretty much drifted and faded away completely uh, as I spent all my free time, and some that probably wasn't really all that free, on this production. Until finally, I found myself about 4, 4.30 in the morning, having just dropped off the last person uh, after the end of the party to celebrate the final show in the production run, the rap party. 4, 4.30 in the morning. I didn't want to go to sleep. Didn't want to be alone. But nobody I knew was still awake. And I didn't have the kind of friends that I felt I could call at that time of night. Or that time of the morning, depending on your perspective. Really, I didn't have any actual friends at that point. So, feeling empty and alone, I rode my bicycle down to the battery to watch the harbor maybe see the sunrise. Over the last month or so, we've seen Jonah's rebellion move him progressively farther from the Lord in graphic fashion. The Lord called him to do something he didn't want to do, preach to a group of pagans. And worse than that, not just pagans, but pagans who lived in the capital city of a nation that was bent on conquering and destroying Israel that wanted to erase the memory that Israel had ever existed. Nineveh represented Jonah's national and spiritual enemy all rolled up into one ugly, disgusting ball. And so he ran, fleeing the other direction with the aim of getting as far as humanly possible from Israel and from Israel's God. But at each step, his journey is described as going down, as descent. And all of that is logical. It's geographically accurate. It was elevation-wise going down to get from Israel to the seacoast, obviously. 
It was going down from the city into the ship and then from the ship into the bottom of the ship and then into the, all of that is literally going down, but it's significant that it's described that way. Down he went. Down from Israel, down from Joppa, down within the ship and then down in the uttermost extreme of the storm into the sea itself. And in all that time, Jonah has not prayed once. When the Lord commanded him, Go to Nineveh. He made no response except to get on the road, go in the other direction, to flee. When he got to Joppa, he prayed no prayer for wisdom. When he found a ship and got on it, he prayed no prayer of thanksgiving for the provision of a birth or protection in the journey. Even when the pagan captain of the ship came to him and begged him, pray to your God that we may not die, even then, he prayed no prayer. Still, he offered no prayer. But finally, he is cast into the sea to drown. And in the face of death, the floodgates of his hard heart finally break open. And he cries out in prayer. Before we get into the, the passage itself, there are a couple of things that we need to look at, acknowledge briefly. One that is somewhat less important than the others. Uh, the other. First, the, the great fish. We have to see that the fish is less important than we think it is. It is mentioned in, at all in exactly three verses in the whole book. 117, 21, and 210. That is the sum total of the times that this fish is mentioned in here. That's it. And in all three of those verses, the fish is incidental. It's not the point at all. In the first and the last, the fish is merely the means that God has appointed to accomplish his own end. In 2.1, it's simply the location where Jonah happened to be when he finally got around to praying. It's not important. But it's a vivid image, and it's generally the one thing that people remember about this book. We remember the fish, or as we typically conceive of it, the whale, although the Hebrew word there is, is really very generic, almost as broad, maybe even a little broader than uh, the English word fish. It could be a whale. It could just be a big fish. It's just really very generically a large sea creature swallowed him, and that's it. Uh, certainly could include a whale, but it doesn't require one. We don't know anything more about that. Now, you know, I'm sure, much ink has been spilled particularly in the last 200 years, to address this situation with the fish. The event of being swallowed and transported by the fish on the one side of things uh, are all those people who start out their study of Scripture by assuming that miracles are impossible. That therefore anything in Scripture that looks miraculous or that is described as a miracle must necessarily be mythology and therefore needs to be explained away. Well, what actually happened was fill in the blank. In response to that attitude, any number of supposed analogs from modern history have been suggested, have been put forth to show that a person could actually be swallowed by a whale or a great fish and live to tell about it. Unfortunately, that approach, well-meaning though it is, accepts implicitly the assumption 
that God cannot intervene in time to do something that is contrary to the laws of nature. It accepts that assumption. So I have to explain that it is in fact possible within the laws of nature for this to have happened. That it's not a miracle. It, it just, it, this is just the way that it happened. But that accepts the assumption that God doesn't work miracles, that he can't work miracles. And that assumption, granting that assumption, gives away the entire ballgame. If for no other reason than that Jesus had to die in truth and then actually rise from the dead for us to have any hope at all. If he didn't actually die, then the penalty of death for sin still hangs over us. And if he didn't rise, then we have no hope of rising after death ourselves. He had to actually die and actually be raised from the dead. That's the ballgame. That's the whole thing. But aside from the importance of accepting God's word when it comes to miracles, focusing on the fish in Jonah simply serves to distract us from what's actually important in this book. The fish is nothing more than the tool that God uses to save Jonah from drowning and bring him to the point of genuine repentance. Focusing on the tool instead of the one who is wielding the tool is simply foolishness. So that's the one thing. The second thing is that we need to be reminded that prayer is far more important than we think it is. It is easy, it is so easy for us to drift along, remembering the Lord, living for Him even, but forgetting to talk to Him, forgetting to pray. Especially in the Western world where self-reliance is so valued, and our lives are generally pretty comfortable. It's easy for us to say, I got this. I can, I can make my life work out the way I want it to. It's fine. I got this. To come to him, apply this self-reliance to our relationship to the Lord and come to him only when we think our lives are in pretty good shape. We've got things together and so now I can come to him on something approaching equal footing. To think, God doesn't want to be bothered with my problems. He saved me. Isn't that enough? I, sh I, I need to just leave him alone. He's, he's done enough for me. I'll take care of the rest. Even when we know that being saved is by grace alone and not because we got our act together or did anything right or righteous, being saved is by grace alone. Even when we know that, we are so tempted to believe or at least to act as if we believe that staying saved is all on me he got me in by grace now I got to stay in by my works and so we don't come to him in prayer because we know that we haven't done it right we know implicitly that we have sinned and failed even now that we are believers we believe or we act as if we believe that God will be displeased with us and will reject us forever if we're not doing everything right, and usually by our own definition of right, rather than his. And because we fall back into that idea, often without recognizing it, we don't pray. We don't go to him and bear our hearts to him. But prayer is one of the means by which God gives us His grace. 
means by which he changes us and by which he changes the world, though we really only have just the surface level understanding of how that works. He says in James that the prayer of a righteous person has great power. And we think, well, I'm not righteous. I sin all the time. I can't be righteous. But you are. In Christ, you have Christ's righteousness. And you plead before the throne of God, before, by the blood of Christ, and in the name of Christ, you come bearing Christ's righteousness. You are righteous. Your prayer is powerful in that name. And when you do go before the throne in the name of Christ, God works. Oh, we know, of course we know, that he doesn't always do exactly what we ask. He's not a genie enslaved to do what, what we command. But he is pleased to work through our prayer to effect real change in the world and in us. When we neglect prayer, as we all are tempted to do, we are choosing to be disconnected from the Lord in favor of our own power, our own agenda. Christian, leave your arrogant pride behind and seek his face in prayer. You don't need fancy words. You don't need the right way, whatever that means. Just a humble heart that trusts him to work and that longs to be in his presence because he's your daddy. There is no greater ministry, there is no greater work for the kingdom than spending consistent time sitting in his presence and begging him to work. Spending consistent time in prayer. God changes the world when his people pray. And he starts by changing us. He starts here. But he changes the world. Okay, so that's, that's our two things that we have to remember. The fish is less important. Prayer is dramatically more important than we think. So let's look at our text itself. Uh, Jonah, after being cast into the sea to drown, finally, finally cries out to the Lord. In chapter 2, we have the record of Jonah's prayer at the end of his time in the fish, but it also gives us a glimpse of the prayer that he offered as he was sinking into the water, uh, at the beginning as he was drowning. As he reflects on his heart attitude and what the Lord did, Jonah describes his sense of impending doom, not just of death, although certainly death, not just of death, but of final separation from God. Even though it was the sailors who actually did the action of throwing him in the sea, Jonah recognizes, verse 3, that truly it is the hand of the Lord that brought him to that point. You cast me into the deep, he says, verse 3. The flood surrounded me, all your waves, all your breakers or billows passed over me. It was Jonah's own rebellion. It was the hand of the sailors that threw him in the sea, but, God, but he sees the hand of the Lord thwarting him at every step, driving him to the uttermost extreme. And not just the physical extreme, but he seems to have believed that he was completely cut off from the Lord, 
not just physically, not just having fled geographically, but verse 4, being driven away from your sight, rejected by the Lord. Have you ever felt that desolation? Have you ever felt like your sin was too great, too much even for God to forgive? Felt like you'd done something that truly would make the Lord cast you into the outer darkness, utterly desolate of any hope? If you've ever been there, you will recognize the grief, the heart cry of verses 5 and 6. Look at that. Jonah says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds, the seaweed was wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah is describing his drowning as being cast into the outer darkness, as far from the Lord as it was possible to be. And the bars closed on me forever. This image reminds me of uh, the Shawshank Redemption is, is read. Morgan Freeman's character is reflecting on prison. Uh, early in the movie, he says, When that cell door closes, that's when it's real. Your whole life blown away in the blink of an eye and nothing left but all the time in the world to think about it and regret it. In Jonah's case, he was looking at all the time in eternity to think about being separated from the God he had served and loved. And in that utter extremity, as the waves closed over him, he finally cried out to the Lord, and the Lord answered. The Lord answered. Now again, the Lord's answers to our prayers are are not always or even often what we would expect them to be, what we think they ought to be, or that what would be best. I cannot imagine that Jonah, as he was sinking in the waves, was thinking, Lord, can you send a great big fish to swallow me up and take me back to land? I can't imagine that that's what his prayer was. But the Lord does what he knows is best, what will most glorify him. And as Jonah spends time in the fish, a different kind of a cell, but still one with all the time in the world to think, as he spends time in the fish, he reflects on the Lord and the salvation that the Lord works. He rejoices that he will again look upon the temple, will again gather with God's people to worship the Lord despite his sin, despite the extremity of his current situation, despite the extremity of his rebellion, he will again gather with God's people to worship the Lord. And as he does, he reflects on the nature of worship and the nature of hope. Now remember, in the storm, the pagan sailors had all prayed to their own gods and nothing had happened as we would expect. Of course it hadn't. Their gods were nothing more than the foolish imaginings of blind men groping in the dark, trying to control a world that is ultimately far beyond their control. Verse 8, Jonah says, Those who pay regard to idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. When you trust in something that is not true, At best, the best you can hope for is that you'll be disappointed. At best. 
If you try to sit in a chair made of smoke, you're going to get a bruise. Faith in and of itself is useless. Believing something strongly doesn't make it true. Authenticity in matters of faith, valuable though it is, is a second-order value. If you have authentic faith, deep faith in a lie, your faith is pointless, fruitless. It cannot save you, no matter how strongly you believe. On the other hand, if you have weak, stumbling, poor faith in something that is true and rock-solid, you will be saved. You will be held up. Even if you're afraid that that faith might not hold, that, that thing, that substance of your faith might not hold, if it is true, it will hold no matter how much you struggle to believe it. What matters most is not the quality of your faith, but the object of your faith. Those who pray to vain idols, those who put their trust in the things of the world, the structures and systems and ideologies of the world, whether that is money or reputation or party politics or critical theory or Q or democracy or socialism or capitalism or libertarianism or any other ism that you can name, if you put your trust in vain idols, you will perish utterly devoid of hope. You will perish utterly devoid of hope. Those things cannot save you from a mud puddle, let alone from the depths. Faith in a lie cannot give you anything at all but regret and death, no matter how firm your faith is. What matters most is not the quality of your faith, but the object of your faith. Trust in the Lord, however haltingly, and He will save you to the uttermost. He is faithful. Jonah does not say that his faith is firm and he earned the favor of the Lord. He says in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. I remembered the Lord. When the pagan sailors did what the prophet of the Lord told them to do, though he was in the midst of fleeing the Lord, the Lord saved those sailors mightily. When the prophet of the Lord finally got around to surrendering and praying, weak sauce though his worship was, the Lord redeemed him out of the depths of his despair and out of the extremity of the seas. And Jonah responds to the salvation of the Lord with a voice of thanksgiving, responds with worship. Truly, does he say in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. It is entirely of God. It is entirely from God that salvation comes. You cannot find it anywhere else. But if you are His, if you are His, the Lord will pursue you even into the depths of the sea to bring you to Himself. To bring you to the realization that your faith has been in the wrong things. To bring you spiritually wounded and bloody, perhaps, from kicking against the goads. To the one who Himself is balm for your soul. 
He will pursue you. Of course, as we'll see over the coming weeks, Jonah still doesn't understand this fully, still doesn't understand grace. Even while he's experiencing it, he still doesn't get it. He's still very resistant to the Lord giving mercy to the hated Ninevites. And he go, he's going to go round and round and round again with God uh, about five minutes after the fish spits him out on land. He's going to be right back to, no, I don't want the Ninevites saved. As long as we are in this life, our faith waxes and wanes, grows stronger and weaker. And true object, though it has, it remains mixed with all sorts of false objects so that we are constantly being pulled away, drawn away from the Lord. And yet, he is constantly pursuing us and bringing us back. That morning in college that I'd ridden my bike down to watch the waves and sunrise over Charleston Harbor, the Lord brought me to this same point, sort of, of, uh, of despair in my own ability and grief at the ashes that my life had become. And I remembered the Lord. My memory was poor. My faith was rusty at best. But he was faithful. As the sky started to lighten, people began to arrive at the battery. Ones and twos here and there, but more and more drifting together in the pre-dawn light until there were probably 30 people, maybe even more than that, chatting quietly. And I was a little curious about this since, you know, 5.45 a.m. is not normally a time that you gather together out in the open air. Not really your typical time for a group gathering. So I, I wandered a little closer to hear what was going on. And about then... About that time, the pastor of that church began their Easter service, their sunrise service. An Easter that I had completely forgotten. And he preached the one who had died in my place and yet lived. And I, with a voice of thanksgiving, worshipped the Lord. Not because I was faithful. I had clearly demonstrated that I was not. Not because I was knowledgeable, but simply because he was worthy of worship. Because he had redeemed my life from the pit. I would go on to struggle with faith and how I should live that faith out. I would, would and still do make innumerable mistakes. I would sin then and still sin against God and against everyone else in my life. God would have to bring me up from other pits yet again. But in that moment, that morning as the sun came up over Charleston Harbor, he proved himself faithful. He proved then and he proves today that he is God of prodigals, God of those who run away. He pursues and he brings us back. Over and over again and over again if necessary, but he will not be thwarted in his pursuit of us. If you are feeling cold and alone today, if you are feeling the weight of separation from the Lord, run to him. Truly, salvation is from the Lord. 
and only from the Lord. He is faithful. In Christ, He will never leave you and will never forsake you. No matter how hard you run from Him, no matter how many ships you board headed for Tarshish, He will pursue you, even to the ends of the earth, even to the depths of the sea. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and He is faithful. Trust Him alone. Let's pray.